finally here. We've been talking about movement screens. So we've been building for this for quite a bit. Uh, in theory, probably we should have probably opened with movement screen. But what I wanted to do is create a picture of why we need to have movement competency, movement variability, movement in general, before we start to look at the idea of what is actually definable, discernible, good movement. Because that is the premise, is we're essentially moving into chaotic, unorganized, unpredictable environments. And if we start to build in this narrative too early around this is the defined standard of movement, then it shapes and forms your th thought process on what a movement screen should be. And the movement screen becomes whittled down into something that you literally just want to have tr be true. And that's hard. It's the reality of the reality of our business and that we are practitioners of performance in a very complex open not only system with human beings but environments with team sports it becomes really hard to extrapolate what is your impact and that goes into research methods that goes into good testing procedures that goes into just good scientific empirical evidence-based training and i don't want to get overly overly myopically focused on singular movements or competency in certain exercises we're going to look at a lot of different things we can really dive into but really this whole first one principles of movement screen is centered off of this general concept are we really actually preparing for chaos and it goes into a lot of different things right because you know I've seen this go in a direction that I don't love. And I see it go in the direction that, honestly, like, I think it's a cop-out. And there's a narrative forming, and it already has been formed, that since we're going into chaotic, open environments, working with complex, open systems, what's the point? Just do random things at random times and hope that it manifests into something better and hope that we limit any potential injuries or increased performance off of that stipulation that what does it matter? And I think that's kind of a cop-out because the truth is, is good science is about trying to understand and improve what's not true. That's all we're trying to do. We're trying to utilize scientific methods to come to some sort of conclusion on what's the best I can do with the body of information in the current situation with the context and the constraints on that environment that I can do. And we need to evaluate that, relatively speaking, towards maybe I'm working with large groups, maybe I'm working one-on-one. -on -one. Maybe I'm working with multiple coaches, or maybe it's just me by myself. Maybe I have access to high-level testing equipment, or maybe I don't. Maybe I'm working with novice or elite-level athletes. Maybe I'm working within an environment with limited resources, minimal time, and really not a whole lot of, of impetus to actually do it, right? And this is the other elephant in the room. 
And this is where I get a lot of empathy for people that are working in situations that don't reward trying to do your best job. And you're talking to a guy who's worked in every single situation and setting possible from high school to working in unlimited resource budget athletic departments in the division one level at a high prominent role working in a commercial setting that actually has to justify and validate why I need these pieces of equipment to have ROI from what we're doing, working with multiple staff members, working with administration that doesn't care or overly cares. I've been in every scenario you can imagine. And when I'm breaking down testing for really anything, movement competency, or what we're talking about today, physiological, readiness, uh, KPI performance outputs, it really comes down to this, what is the bandwidth for not only the person administering the test, you, as, the, uh, as well as the athletic department and the athlete you're testing? Because there's always going to be that moment of you trying to push the boundaries of doing more and doing better. It's going to be met with opposition of why do we need to change or that seems expensive or I don't get why we're doing this. And it's hard. The elephant in the room is because I really don't know what is happening when I train people and what that means, relatively speaking, to performing at a higher level. No one does. I don't. You don't. No one ever will. That's kind of the fun part. But that's also hard to explain to someone that's putting a lot of faith in you to train them. That is where we need to really get some sort of discourse between myself and you, the listener, going through this module, trying to understand what is actually good testing that's not only valid meaning it's somewhat relevant to what the task at hand is. Remember also, too, that what is relevant to chaos, maybe reducing the rate of chaos, as well as reliable. That can we actually repeat that test. And if it's not valid, what's the point? And if it's not reliable, are you really actually doing something worthwhile? And that's not sexy. It's not overly grandiose it's just real if you can't if it doesn't mean anything and it doesn't you can't repeat it you really need to figure out what is the point of testing in the first place so we're going to focus on that are you ready for the chaos is really about do we even know what we have in the first place because we can't prepare for unpredictable in theory but we know what we don't want we know that if we have certain restrictions in terms of joint articulation. We know that if we have compensatory strategies, like I'm shifting my weight left to right, i.e. asymmetry during multi-joint movement actions, that might increase my risk. We know that if I have pain, which is the most important one, that that will definitely increase my risk. And it's all we can really try to figure out. Is there restrictions or range of motion? And we don't know why. Is there some sort of movement compensation? And again, we don't know why. And then is there pain? That's it. 
That really is the three biggest things you need to know when trying to assess a movement screen. Not really overly complicated. Now it's complex because we don't know where that restriction and range of motion is coming from or that aberrant motion is coming from or from potentially where that pain is coming from. But at least we know. Right? The, the classic adage is, if it hurts, don't do it. It's pretty simple, logical, intuitive things. But imagine I'm going into a training situation or a performance situation, and I don't have that information that something hurts. Imagine that I'm doing a whole long training cycle uh, from micro cycle out to macro cycle, and I built it around a couple key correlate exercises. You know, let's just say I'm working with American football and I really want to develop snatch, clean, front squat, pull up, glute ham. But those are my big five. And I really, really need to do those exercises at a high level, whether it's it's a, a certain art rep max, it's a certain velocity-based component, it's a certain density-based component. I don't really care, but it's just something that we need to push towards, right? We, we've prioritized those five exercises and hitting threshold and peaking those and helping that corresponds to sprinting faster or jumping higher or throwing something further or faster, right? And that's, that's common, that's a common thread. Right? And you and I are both alike probably in the idea of like I, you just want to get to the good stuff, the stuff that's going to make a tangible difference. But then we find out that they have a, a fused wrist. Wow, that's going to have a significant impact on a lot of movements where I'm actually have to physically hold a barbell or hold on to an implement altogether, which is all of those exercises, by the way. Right? I have no extension of my wrist or it hurts when I'm asked to go into extension of my wrist, okay, well, I probably need to get a lot more elbow flexion, a lot more shoulder flexion, and maybe a little bit more external rotation of the shoulder on stuff like, like snatch and cleans. Do I have that? Okay, so that fused wrist, because I broke it skateboarding or snowboarding back in the day, that's not going anywhere. I can't change bone stru bony structures and over time, since I have limited range in my wrist, I've developed some sort of some sort of overuse injury in my elbow. Like maybe I have tennis elbow or just general elbow tendonitis. And then maybe I've started to develop some sort of compensatory action or reduction in range of motion of my shoulder. And maybe I have some sort of compensation at that thorax now where I go into this lifted pump handle and I go into a lordotic position and maybe I have potentially back pain. And the kinetic chain, we could say it's all linked together and we've gone through this you know, continuum of mobility and stability. My point being is if we, unless we know that there's some sort of pain, restriction or compensation, we really don't know what exercises we can actually physically use because that would therefore make any of those variables one, if not in combination, will make any exercise that we potentially might want to do obsolete. So this whole idea of KPIs and everything else has this fractal representation with 
whatever it is I can do. That small things repeated is going to have a big impact over time. And then small, one of those small details in between from A to B, right, just having adequate wrist flexion extension might lead into my ability to do snatches, cleans, pull-ups, front squat, maybe not glue ham, but it goes into this dynamic of if I can't flex and extend my wrist, I've now lost at least four out of the five exercises in some way. Or at least I need to figure out how to make a modification if I want to stick with it. Right, so now all of a sudden I'm scrambling and I'm like, yeah, well, I'm going to do straps on front squat or maybe I'll go safety bar on snatch. I feel like it's not going to be that big of a deal, but um, we'll have to try to see. Oh, wow, that radial deviation of that, of that wrist, it doesn't really abduct or adduct well either, so that's tough. Or supinate, pronate in terms of the forearm, with relative to speaking to the elbow, that's tough. Um, um, maybe I'll just do snatch pulls. Well, I can't really clean either, so maybe I'll just do clean pulls. Um, you can get where I'm going with this, right? Like you, you're just basically creating a lot of inefficiency. And that's my point in terms of preparing for the chaos. It's, you're looking at the wrong end of the spectrum. We all are, we all do it, we have to, right? Like that's why we're doing this in the first place is for the opportunity to really take exercises and see how meaningful and impactful they are. But the truth is the biggest rate limiting step for any of those exercises is the ability to do them in the first place. So it goes into this next level of how do we accurately, consistently screen for this? And this is tough, right? Because you talk to a physical therapist who has more of a one-on-one -on -one clinician setting, they'll, they'll basically just rip apart any, base, any movement screen that's built for scale or built with larger samples. Right, uh, the one I utilize is functional movement screen, and I think it's a phenomenal test. I don't think it's a phenomenal test because it gives me this incredible insight that no one else could do. In fact, quite the opposite. It's a phenomenal test because it gives me an insight that everyone else can understand and do. And that's the, do that's the difference. Context dependence really matters. Physical therapists, athletic trainers, orthopedics, Anyone that's looking at a patient in a clinical setting has a different set of context than what a strength conditioning coach does. Because the clinician needs to look at that movement competency as a means to progress from pain or some sort of orthopedic surgery. The strength coach is looking to progress that movement potential into something better, right? So they're going from something, we're going towards something. And that matters quite a bit. It does. Because when you have someone in pain, that takes precedent. When you have someone who's gone through some sort of orthopedic surgery, that takes precedent, right? All the biomotor ability, bioenergetic stuff that we want to do is completely obsolete if they're in pain. Can't do anything. You have to focus on that. And that's the focal point of any clinician, that's your job. And that's a really good litmus for anyone out there trying to refer people to physical therapists is, do they bleed over into strength conditioning? If they do, 
they are not doing their job. And I get it, I absolutely get it that they probably have this keener, more fundamental interest in strength conditioning. I get it. You got a lot of education to do what you could have been doing with an associate's degree. But the other end of the spectrum, we can't be doing what they do. We're not clinically trained. Our scope would limit us to help diagnosing and treating pain. But it's a gift. I'm telling you right now, it's a gift to not have to work with people in pain or disease state. You refer those people out. But that's your, ca that's your caveat, that's your indicator. Are they good PT or clinician? Do they get them out of pain or a disease state? Yes or no? If they can, they're worth their weight. If they can't, they start to do a lot of other things that's not relevant to their job and you need to evaluate whether you should send them there anymore. It's a common thread. I see a lot of physical therapists trying to do strength conditioning and be the, the same exchange for me doing their job. You're not qualified, you don't know what you're doing, you have a very poor understanding of what really pushing towards something is really all about. Because they have a focal point of looking at pushing away, pulling away from something or moving away from something. But as we start to look at the screen, we start to look at it from the context of what's relevant to a strength conditioning coach, and that's developing moving movement threshold, or I guess threshold of movement based off of movement competency. So do I have the ability to move without pain, aberrant motion, meaning I have some sort of uncontrolled element through a full range of motion? And that right there gives me the platform to take any of those movement patterns that we want to train and push the threshold. Right, because we have all the prerequisite stuff. We can really hammer the details off of I want that person moving heavier. I want that person moving faster. I want that person going longer. And then all of a sudden we can do our job as we wanted to from the context of trying to get them developed as opposed to just managing a bunch of stuff we're not really that interested in. And I think that's the part that's so important. And when I talk about the idea of this principle section of preparing for the chaos, you know, we're trying to make a big target, or I would even say a target altogether, somewhat smaller. That we're taking just this big blank canvas and trying to decide what in the hell that we actually should do. And that's where we go back into the screening, right? And we, whether you use table test, a movement competency diagnostic, like a functional movement screen, or you utilize just simply force plates or any kind of objective measurement that we can start to extrapolate out where and what is the best strategy going forward. But the key is most of us are working with larger samples. When you're a personal trainer and you're working with double digit people, you need to have reliability with yourself. Right? You need to be consistent with your testing. The frequency, the timeline, the logistics, the executable strategies, right? This, this one practitioner, this one strength coach that's taking someone through a screen of some sort, like I do the full arsenal table test and I do the full functional movement screen and I do all the breakouts and then I test them on a force plate, test them on a Nordic, I test them on maybe some grip and then I start to evaluate from one thing to the next any gross changes. Well, those changes 
and that's what we're hopefully trying to see from a validity standpoint, is based off the backbone of was it reliable? So let's say that you change the order. Let's say that you change the time. Let's change. Let's say you just change the screen altogether, right? That you know we typically were looking for this shin torso angle parallel to each other vertically when they're doing an overhead squat first time, and then next time, I'm like, eh, you know, I really want to see a really massive dorsiflex position, and I don't really care about the upper body. Ah, they have limited ankle dorsiflexion, so that's what I'm going to focus on. That might not be congruent with the first time you did it, so therefore that test becomes unreliable. And there's like countless other examples of this. But when you have the luxury of working with one-on-one, -on -one, and it's just you being the, the, the assessor, so to speak, you have to stay disciplined and consistent on your end of testing. When it gets a little bit trickier is when you start to ex expand that out to larger samples or larger groups. So let's say that you're working with groups of 100 and it's you. Extra point of being more consistent. Let's say that you're working with groups of 100 and you have multiple people implementing the screen. Then you have logistic or systems you need to figure out in order to implement that screen. And this is where it gets into a little bit more of the, of the what's realistic and what's actually going to be meaningful. Right? We're trying to find valid indicators of what is actually going to matter towards performance. Right? The, the testing actually has some sort of correspondence to what we're trying to do from a, a performing at a higher level context. So what we need to figure out from there is not only how we keep it reliable, consistency, but how do we keep it reliable amongst multiple people? And that goes in iterator reliability. That there's a, a reliable factor from me to the next person, to the next person, the next person, when we're implementing the screen with multiple people. And that, that's essentially the best case scenario here. And you know that might seem like, wow, I'm really bored on this, but I can't tell you enough. I see most people throw, throw the baby out in the bathwater and just get to the good stuff of training people without context of really good testing measurement and testing procedure and lose sight of the most important thing about testing is it needs to be consistent and it needs to have some sort of relation to what we're doing. And then we just work through. We work through that screen process, right? And it's something as simple as I just do a deep squat looking at these three things. I look at ankle, knee, hip, and I tell all my coaches to do that, and we just try to do the best we can with that information. Maybe I extrapolate it out, I do the full functional movement screen with everyone. Maybe I do a table test with everyone. But the idea from there goes into a little bit more hands-on, a little bit more open for interpretation, right? And this is where it gets a little bit trickier, right? The reliability gets lessened when we start to include more people and get more nuance or specific with the test, right? That's, that's the tricky part, that a very simple three-point approach of, I guess, four, but zero, one, two, three is ingenious for the idea that it's going to be so simple that everyone can assess it, right? Zero is the pain. One, they can't do it all together. Two, they can do it with some sort of compensation. And then three, they can do it. It's pretty simple. When in doubt, score low. That was probably the best thing functional movement screen ever did. And I start to look at that and I start to say, okay, let's say I do a table test. 
And let's start to look at degrees of internal and external rotation of the hip and shoulder, which is really valuable information. Well, honestly, like ever do a table test with the goniometric measurement or potentially some sort of eyeball? I've seen various, and this is where you gotta go into ranges. Uh, we usually, we use a zero to five, zero, uh, five to 10, a 10 to 15 on certain, on hip internal rotation. And then we look at a zero to 15, 15 to 30, four, 30 to 45, 45 plus on external rotation. And I start to look at it from the context of, do they know the set point? Do you know where we're starting to rotating from? Do they know the, do they know the ranges we're working with? Like their eyeball assessment off of zero to five might be different than the next person. Maybe they didn't position them in the right spot. They didn't flex their, flex their hip and get that like adducted appropriately. Okay, maybe that's not a good setup. It just goes into a lot more variables they need to account for. Then there's the other element of putting hands on, like hey, I'm gonna grab your ankle and knee, are you okay with that? Do you feel comfortable lying down on this table? Like there's a lot of other things that you need to associate with table tests that makes it a little bit harder to stay reliable. No, the extreme reliability is anytime we can take the human decision out of it and using technology and using hardware, using things like force plates to evaluate shifting left to right. You know, one of the things that I've learned over the past seven years working in a gen pop setting is there's not this like automatic trust and, and willingness to do whatever it is you say. You got to earn that. And it's fair. It actually really is something we should consider a lot working with team settings and not taking for granted the fact that these athletes have rights and they have the ability to say, why are we doing this? Or they have the permission to ask why they're doing something before they do it. But on the other end, it goes into this dynamic of it's pretty, pretty foolproof to have a piece of hardware when you jump and land saying you shift your weight left to right. And one of the things that we like to ask, are you comfortable jumping? And if they say no, you got a really good piece of information there. You could pry and you could say, do you mind explaining why you don't feel comfortable? But that might come off as you being more of a, a dictator. But the other end, it goes into, if they don't feel comfortable jumping and don't feel comfortable telling you why, it's an assumption but you could probably say that there's something going on from a pain perspective. That they have some sort of lower, lower body injury that they feel uncomfortable jumping. Generally speaking, this isn't all the time, the people that feel most uncomfortable jumping is not because of performance, it's because they are in hurt, they, they are currently in pain. And you evaluate that relatively speaking to, okay, that's all I need to know. You don't need to push, you don't need to prod, you just say, Thank you for sharing that. I'm completely fine. Uh, let's go back and let's go through the workout. And that's the part that I think is a lot of times when you're testing at a high level, you learn this stuff intuitively. You know, and they start to, when you do a functional movement screen, does that, does that hurt? Ah, it's really tight. Okay. There's a difference between being tight and pain. If you were going to ask to do that over and over again, could you do that? Probably not. That's probably means it's in pain. Or the other level of like they're grimacing and they're looking like they're about to throw up in their mouth. You ask them, does that hurt? And if they say, no, I'm fine. And you say, why don't you stop? And you make a mental note of, 
if they have other situations where they show that dis discomfort, then we start to look at the other aspect of probably need to evaluate that there's going to be a whole lot of things we can't do down the road. What my, my point of all this is, and this is important, is reliability from test to test and person to person has a foundational piece for validity. That if the test isn't consistent, it doesn't matter if it's valid or not. It's not the same relationship from validity to reliability. The test could mean something, relatively speaking, to the greater goal, but if it's inconsistent, it really makes it obsolete. We can have a reliable, invalid test and learn more than a valid, reliable test, unreliable test, because what we don't know is what would happen if that test was done accurately. It's a guess, validity-wise. It really is. It's all a hypothesis. Science is just forming a hypothesis and seeing if whether that hypothesis is true or not. We don't know if that hypothesis is true unless we have consistent testing and, and good measurement. And it might come off as boring or disinteresting, but the reality is you should be an absolute, almost psychopath with reliability in terms of testing. It should be a, almost this like verbatim script that when people get in a situation of testing, looking at movement competency, trying to find the big three, pain, reduction in the range of motion, or even looking at compensation, that it should be a very strict set of criteria that we're talking about. Does this hurt? Yes or no? Tight. Does this hurt? Yes or no? No, I guess not. Do you feel comfortable doing this? Yes or no? Not really. Thank you. Let's move on. Looking at certain things in terms of, hey, this is the movement that we're looking for. I want this there, that there, and I want you to try to go as much range of motion at this joint as you possibly can. Can you demo it? No, because that would influence the test. Well, I've had a hard time visualizing it. Perfect, that's all I need to know. These are things that come up quite a bit when you're testing, and you need to have this, you need to have this script and this counter to potentially all the questions you may get, and the more repetition you get, the more comfortable you get with that counter. I don't really get why I'm doing this. Really just trying to look at potentially any pain, reduction in the range of motion or compensation of the, the ankles, the knees, the hip, the back, the shoulder. That's it, because that's, that's all could have a big impact on what I'm doing from a training perspective. If I don't have range of motion, if I don't have range of motion without compensation, and if I don't have range of motion without compensation and, or pain, then I'm gonna have a hard time writing a program. That is where I really need to figure out, and that's the game. So thinking about the screen, again, I don't wanna get overly in the weeds on this, I'm gonna go through in practical what I do from the screening perspective with all my clients and athletes, but the truth is that the foundation of this is reliability validity, and then seeing if I'm moving towards something. And looking at the concentric circle off of these movements as net positive, right? The compounding and fractal nature of 
of having something small and seemingly unrelated, but a, a big problem is going to have a much bigger problem down the road. Take a second, pause this, look at your own screen for a second, um, too. I think this is like a good inventory. And like, honestly, like for me, this is a great opportunity to revisit and think about my personal uh, approach to screening and looking at movement. Because the reality of the situation is, is when we enter these chaotic open environments, it is really, really difficult to look at that and honestly say if my athlete is more prepared without the least baseline understanding of were they able to move without pain, were they able to move without restriction, or were they able to move without compensation when I train them for months on end, pushing all of these exercises to the threshold. Because whatever outcome I got from a physiological adaptation from that threshold is completely obsolete if it was done with those three variables associated with it. All right, guys, hope this helps. Um, looking forward to the, the next couple of weeks. This is a really important one and hope it makes sense too in terms of why we put this last. Thank you.